Hello and welcome to episode 391 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming in from Brent, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks, episode 391 for the 1991 Washington Huskies. There it the is. The last team that was 11-0 from the University of Washington this week when we were about to play the final Apple Cup. It's Thanksgiving week. Not, it is not the, the Niners. Final Apple Cup. Hold on. It is the Niners on Thanksgiving night. Good things happen when that game happens. The one time it's happened before. And, sample size. And... The final Apple Cup with both teams in the Pac-12. What a week of football and sports we have coming. Indeed it is. Yeah, when you put it that way, it really is like rivalry week. Obviously, Washington State has become in many ways a less important rival than Oregon, particularly going forward when this week will be Oregon week and the Apple Cup will be played at least next year in September. But uh, to have the Niners and to have Washington State in the same week, that's a lot of rivalries. Well, let's get into it. We've obviously got a lot to get to this week. We'll start with our search for Seattle's best IPA, which again takes us to Silver City Brewery in Silverdale, oh. Washington, our friends. This wow. time the Alive and Amplified Silver okay. City IPA. The hoppiest beer Silver City Brewery has ever concocted. Alive and Amplified debuts our all-new proprietary hop, ampl- hop amplifier, easy for you to say, process to extract as much flavor and aroma as possible from the sacred fruit through every stage of the brew, incorporating citra, mosaic, chinook, centennial, and galaxy hops. Bold pine and citrus flavors pleasantly overwhelm the palate with an electrifying bitterness and a sweet, sweet juicy dankness on the nose. All of this glorious hop flavor is contained within a shiny golden liquid with just enough malt to provide substance while keeping things vibrant and nimble enough that you can shred all night long. There we go. Wow. It's abbreviated. Kevin reads a bunch of hop-related words. <laughs> I, just, I, I didn't follow any of that, but it sounded great. Citra, Mosaic, Chinook, Centennial, and Galaxy Hops. Uh, in, in case you didn't see this, if you're not on the Discord, you missed out. We we did post an updated rankings of Seattle's best IPAs, my my ongoing rankings in the Discord. Which, if you're not on the Discord, what even are you doing? It's kind of happening in there. There's a shocking number of the listener on the Discord. There's at least a few. Uh, I I don't know if I can be in there. I got, I couldn't, literally could not find my notifications. I know nothing about Discord. I never use it. Uh, but you've dragged me into it. There was like a request the... for the famous cousin Katie as well. We'll see if that happens. I don't know. Don't hold your breath. But I got a notification that somebody tagged me, I think during the Seahawks game or something, and I could not find it in the notifications because that is how little I know about Discord. But at the same time, I don't know if I can be on Discord during a, a Seahawks game. The tension is too high or, or a Husky game for that matter. Like I was way too stressed to be thinking about the opinions of anybody else. Luca would start talking. He'd be like, the game is over. He was doing a Pelton brother thing early on in the game against Oregon state and just be like, we're going to lose. 
And I'm like, I know we're going to lose, but you don't have to talk about it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Luca, who knows way more about Discord than you, he could definitely show you where the notification was. Uh, well, our toast this week. I also said the game was over when the, the Huskies punted, I believe, in the first quarter. So <laughs> there was a, in the Pelton group, the uh, our group chat with the famous cousin Katie. We definitely all called the game over when the Huskies gave the ball back to Oregon State up by two points. So, or maybe even before that. So not not quite as early as the first quarter, but it definitely was called over in Oregon State's favor multiple times. When I called that loss against the Rams, I was right when you call it early. That's the thing is most of the time you're right when you're negative. <laughs> over a long enough timeline, everyone is correct. Every take is correct. Uh, we start our toast this week with, is alluded to, to the continuation of the Apple Cup as the Washington and Washington State Athletic Departments announced Sunday morning. They've agreed in principle to continue the football series through at least 2028 with the 2024 game to be played at Lumen Field, as we've previously discussed, before returning to alternating campus sites starting 2025 in Pullman. With the move from the traditional post-Thanksgiving window, the 2024 game will be played in September as part of week three of the NCAA So season. strange. Such a strange week to have it happen. I, I mean, I'm sure you recall this. I think this was Jake Locker, I want to say. Uh, but when UW led off the season with Oregon August 30th, it's just like the most batshit game. Every time I remember it, like looking back on it now, it was like, God, I wonder why the Pac-12 collapsed. And then you're like, oh, yeah, they decided to have UW and Oregon on August 30th at a time when the, literally nobody was paying attention to it. I understand the rivalry was pretty lopsided at that point. But like there are just so many decisions along the way that derailed this conference. But I don't think it was that one. It is so strange to me how those games have flipped, right? That game was played on August 30th in the mid-2000s. Now Oregon is ensconced as the final game of the season, at least for the foreseeable future. And Wazoo, somehow, some way on September 14th, it's such a strange situation. It does feel like a huge win for UW if this game permanently moves to September because obviously the snowballs have been such a classic feature of Apple Cups. And the Huskies won the most recent snowball, one of the uh one of their better Apple Cup wins in the long streak during Chris Peterson's tenure against Mike Leach. But uh the the nineteen ninety two snowball remains a little I love point. it. It's, it. This is a win for you dub because something happened in nineteen ninety two. I'm just saying, generally speaking, literally the, the conference doesn't even exist anymore. Like you just have to I'm I'm just being straight up with you. There are some places they may go later in the season that are a lot snowier than Pullman, Washington. I, I agree with that, but they're not going to go there every other year because you don't go any one location that frequently, except Oregon, where it is not known to be very different weather than Seattle in November. These dudes better get ready to be cold, though. So I, that's fair. Uh, next up, two Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Week, Jabbar Muhammad. Who, we as go. we discussed on the emergency pod Saturday night, covering the Huskies going 2-11-0 by holding off Oregon State 22-20, had a pair of interceptions, a fumble recovery in that game, as well as four pass breakups. An assist to someone we forgot to mention on the pod, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Carson Bruner, who had 14 tackles, forced the fumble Muhammad recovered, and tipped one of the passes Muhammad intercepted. All right, lastly this week. Temperature-wise, I'm looking at the schedule temperature-wise. For next year, it's not they that have bad. this. I mean, they have a stretch 
at Penn State on November 9th, but then three of their last four is the old Pac-12. So yeah. it goes USC at home, then Penn State, then UCLA at home. Either of those would have been fine to have been on the road, and then at Oregon. So not fine. Great. Yeah. They they really actually manage it's such it is such a strange schedule to be seeing this at Iowa on October twelfth. Uh, and then at Indiana on October 26th. But actually, I don't I don't think it's going to be that cold of a season for the, the next year. The, the friend with whom I traveled to the Michigan and Michigan State games floated the idea of the Iowa trip next year. Of the Iowa trip? So we'll see. You'd see, you'd see too many points. <laughs> I could be, uh, I could, could meet up with the Iowa listener. It's, wow, it's okay. very possible. All right, lastly this week, congrats to Italy. For qualifying Hello. for UEFA Euro 2024 with Monday's thrilling nil-nil draw against Ukraine go. and Germany. Just nobody knows how to like annoy the rest of the world. Apparently not the UEFA leadership, which has called for desires to see Italy in the final of UEFA Euro 2024 after their failure to qualify for the last World Cup. But the rest Who of the world... That? One of the higher, I don't know if it was the president of UEFA, but one of the higher ups there. That's very, very strange. But there's not an automatic bid. We own Europe. Are you kidding me? You don't get an automatic bid for being the best team in all of Europe for winning the previous Euro. That's not an automatic bid. Do you get that in the World Cup? Do you get an automatic bid the next time? No, only the host gets an automatic bid in the World Cup. That is absurd. If you win, you should get an automatic bid after that. As the best soccer team in the entire fucking continent, you would think they would let you in to the Euro. Well, apparently there was a VAR controversy that there was a possible penalty against Italy that wasn't called. I'm just seeing this now. I'm I'm learning of this live. Uh, But uh, I I agree with the no call penalty (laughs) (laughs) that we were just learning of. The wild thing to me is uh, the baby is fantasy genius has decided to become a Philadelphia Eagles fan. (sighs) This has led to a lot of tension in our household. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about this earlier as I saw Nick Sirianni with his Eagles visor with an Italian flag on it. And I really am just like, is Nick Sirianni the only Italian that I don't cheer for? Like, it, it doesn't even, like, lessen the blow when the Eagles win, because I just dislike the Eagles so much. Really, I don't even dislike the Eagles that much. I dislike the 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 talking heads surrounding the Eagles, the the chatter about the Eagles. That's the thing that I hate. It's not even necessarily personally Nick Sirianni. It's every single other person talking about the Eagles. But Nick Sirianni being like, hey, I've got this Eagles visor. Can we just get an Italian flag on there also? Is like, one of the great moments in Italian sports history at this point, right? I, I don't know if I've noticed any other Italian flags out there. Belichick has definitely Croatia is on his hat or visor or whatever. Really? Wait, wears. I had no idea. Yeah, this is a thing. And many of the helmets, like Jackson Smith and Jigba has the Nigerian flag on his helmet. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Pay attention. Check it That's out. That's awesome. All right. But I had not noticed that previously with Nick Sirianni until he was celebrating tonight's victory. Oh, he's he's been over, doing it for a while. He's gotten truth. that Italian flag on there, and I'm like, all right, maybe you're okay. Maybe the Eagles are okay. Maybe I I, I will forgive. I look. I also watched a lot of that game. I, actually, I didn't watch that much of the game. I watched a lot of that fourth quarter. Jalen Carter's name 
did not come up. That that is fair. Uh, UEFA president Alexander Seferin said it would be Italy must qualify for Euro 2024. Otherwise, it will be a disaster. The Italian national team is too important, but I think it will beat Ukraine, which they did not. But they just needed a draw in that one. Was that uh, it? If they lose, if they lost, they were out of the Euro? Well, the good news, and, and this applies to Ukraine, is that uh, they they have the opportunity to qualify through the playoffs still. But Italy has now qualified directly for Euro 2024. Jesus Christ, we really of, make it hard. Out of group uh, out of their group, finishing second behind England, but uh, and tied with Ukraine, but advancing on goal differential. Uh, they did have seventeen shots in today's game, but just two of those. I goal. believe was this also in that group that they played North Macedonia, who they previously drew with to not make the World Cup. <laughs> yes, they did play North Macedonia. That was North Macedonia who, in the World Cup qualifying, if they had beaten North Macedonia, they were going to make the World Cup. Sounds right. Apparently, the U.S. also uh, has qualified for Copa America with their performance in the CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinal, beating Trinidad and Tobago, despite losing. Winning on aggregate, despite losing 2-1 in Trinidad and Tobago. I guess not not both of those. They were just playing in in Port of Spain. So. The joke is it is still both Trinidad and Tobago. Oh. Was it North Macedonia that beat? It was North Macedonia. Okay. I knew that I had a latent, for some reason, hatred for North Macedonia. <laughs> it's really just Italy, though. It's not even North Macedonia. I just, we have no, nobody but ourselves to play. Exactly. But at least we've got the Italian flag on Nick Sirianni's visor as the Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl. Well, I guess we'll take it. All right. This is week three of Lil Woody's Fast Food Month starting Tuesday with the Lil Crunchwrap Supreme. Have not heard anything yet on uh on any feedback on your uh your suggestion except it being seconded in the felton cast discord which which suggestion to mix it up on on the fast food month who would not agree with that suggestion i i mean some people may enjoy the classics i think what what didn't they do last year like a bonus week of fast food month that is possible yeah so the, the maybe that's where we get interesting is the bonus week Maybe that's where things get a little bit spicier. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's talk about sports, starting with the Mariners, who made a trade on Friday, sending reliever Isaiah Campbell to the Red Sox for infielder Luis Urias, yet another right-handed hitting utility man, before Friday's deadline to tender contracts to arbitration-eligible players. Urias was a regular from Milwaukee in 2021 and 2022 across all three infield positions besides first base, posting three-plus war both seasons and hitting a combined 39 home runs. His average dropped to 194 last season after suffering a hamstring strain in the season opener, and his slugging percentage went below 300 as he was traded midseason to Boston, though his walk rate remained strong. Urias is entering his third and final year of arbitration and can't make less than last year's $4.7 million salary. This is such a Mariners trade. <laughs> yes, it is, of course. This is the most Mariners of all trades. But actually, he was he hit better than I think I realized. Uh, that he, in, had three, he had three plus war seasons back-to-back years, or that was combined over both years? No, back-to-back in, years. In 21 and 22, at 24, 25 years. This is one of those things, I know exactly what's going to happen, is we're going to talk ourselves into it, be like, this is a buy-low candidate. He's coming off one bad season. And then we're going to get to July, and he's going to be hitting like 089 
or something, and we're going to be like, and the only offseason move was Luis Urias? I could just feel it. I can feel it in my bones that we are going to be complaining about this trade and how it was the only move that the Mariners made, and they'll have released him, and he'll probably sign with the Dodgers or whatever. I think you're you're going a little too close to the Colton Wong script here, I must say. I mean, Colton Wong was older, so that's the encouraging sign that this year's uh, bounce back at second base. And obviously, they they did then successfully run this playback playbook with uh, Josh Rojas, who also was coming off of a down first two thirds of the 2023 season when they acquired him at the trade deadline. Oh no, they've done. I mean, it was Abraham Toro, and then there was Josh Rojas, and now there's Luis Urias. Like that's this is what the Mariners do. For better or worse, this is the type of player that the entire roster is built on. Hinges Mostly on. worse. I, I will say, I I really liked Isaiah Campbell for the moments that he pitched for the Mariners out of the bullpen last year. Mustaches on the roster, way down after this move. That is true. The concern is that Italians on the roster may be down because this doesn't feel like great news for Sam Haggerty, who was tendered uh, arbitration by the Mariners in his first year of eligibility. I think we're okay with Dom Canzone, though. I thought we're in better shape with Dom Canzon for sure, but why not both as always? So, I mean, the other, you know, this could also be uh, something that affects Jose Caballero's spot on the roster. It's funny because, you know, you, you think about, wow, three war. Caballero almost had three war last season. Really? Yeah. He actually, I mean, he had a pretty nice year. Yeah. And I mean, his value on the base paths, his defensive versatility. So it, there's, there's but clearly also no was way. benched at various parts of the season. There's clearly no way that Caballero, Hagerty, and Urias can all be on the roster next season. One, one's got to go. So we shall see on that one. Yeah, that's not great news. No, it's not. Uh, that's that's the biggest Mariners offseason news to date. Uh, we'll see when free agency gets started in earnest. For I mean, first- I think. Are we still tra- talking baseball? Or are you moving on? I mean, if you have other baseball thoughts, I mean, Austin Nola did become the first ma- marquee free agent uh, re-signing with the Phillies on a seven-year deal. Again, I think, I mean, the the main piece is what we've learned over this this last week is exactly what I told you would happen, which is the Mariners are not even in the conversation on Shohei. It, it was wildly optimistic to think that this team who told us exactly how they were going to spend to told us exactly how they viewed the roster would just be like, Hey, everything that we have told you, we said it explicitly all the way back to Kevin Mather, right? This team has told us exactly what they are going to do. There's no lies within the organization. There's no secrets. They have told us precisely how they approach the roster, how they want to approach the roster, how they approach the paywall. And I think that, from what we have heard, we have seen no reports linking the Mariners to Shohei Otani. In fact, we have seen numerous reports from credible sources linking the Mariners to not Shohei Otani, that they are not in on Shohei. And I think we have no reason otherwise to not trust those those sources. It's fine. I get it. But in this offseason, when you have that NOLA contract going back to the Phillies, we've said this before. This is the window for the Mariners to leverage. It's not money this time, so that's a positive. It will increase the payroll a little bit, but to leverage the pitching that they have right now, the extraordinarily deep starting pitching, which every single team across the league is looking for starting pitching, especially young, 
team-controlled starting pitching. This is the moment that they need to flip one and or multiple of these pitchers. Everybody is touchable aside from Luis Castillo and George Kirby. For George Kirby to enter the conversation, it would have to be elite-level young talent. But to me, beyond that, every single other pitcher is attainable from this mix. When you look at it, you have Kirby and Castillo at the top of the rotation. You have Robbie Ray coming back at some point. You have Marco Gonzalez adding to the mix. Those are not players anybody is interested in. But they are contributing major league pitchers, most likely. When you look at those four, I know you don't want to go into opening day with that, plus some of the young pitching that they have. There are at least two starting pitchers who are expendable, who have value. Logan Gilbert is the one who should be front and center circled. I love Logan Gilbert. He is awesome. But if you turn Logan Gilbert into very, very, very high-level major league hitting, that is such a win for this team overall and for how they want to build this roster. It doesn't require the 10-year, $500 million, $600 million, $700 million contract that a big free agent would require. It requires Logan Gilbert giving up. I think we we said that there were those four years of arbitration left. There's not going to be cheap arbitration for Logan Gilbert, but like he is not that far off from where Aaron Nola is. And that to me is exactly what I told Luca. I was like, you better keep pitching because right now, pretty good major league pitching is leading to massive contracts. I was like, be a starting pitcher. That is the best thing in the entire world to be at this very moment. I mean, I suppose so. There are, there are other better things to be, but that's a pretty good one. <laughs> Born rich. <laughs> <laughs> Your options are you well, go back and you have rich parents or you table. get really good at pitching. Off that's it. Those are the two best things you can be. But But you understand what I'm saying. This is not even that high level, right? Aaron Nola wasn't competing for a Cy Young. This is like a hovering in the three ERA type of pitcher. Very good in the playoffs, more valuable to Philadelphia than somewhere else. But like, I think the deal that Blake Snell gets this offseason is going to be a massive deal. And this is what teams need. The Mariners have what may be the best asset on the market at the moment in Logan Gilbert, who is a movable asset under team control, I mean, who is Aaron- starting pitching. Aaron Nola finished fourth in Cy Young voted this year. Or that's, that was that was 2022, I suppose. I'm, yeah, I'm looking at 2022. So it's it's not like he's been that far away. He, no, and I'm not saying he's bad, but like he's made one All Star game. How many All Star games did Robbie Ray make? I think two, maybe, maybe, maybe two. Nope, one time All Star, but he did win the Cy Young. But also the the contracts are probably not that dissimilar from each other. Nola got 172 million over seven years. What did Ray get? I mean he only got five years, I think. Five years and a little bit like 117 million, I want to say. So somewhat dissimilar. But but that's kind of like the territory. Robbie Ray is the territory that Blake Snell was in. That no, that Aaron Nola's in. Blake Snell is a legit number one starter. Blake Snell is a two-time Cy Young Award winner. He is at a different tier than these pitchers. That's what I'm talking about. Robbie Ray was not at at the tier that Blake Snell is in, even coming off of the Cy Young. Like people understand, we'll talk about this with the Huskies. People are able to understand nuance with these things, right? 
And really, they were able to Blake Snell also, despite having no one Cy Young twice, one time All Star. That is bonkers. <laughs> um, but people are able to understand the nuance in these situations. Blake Snell is going to get paid more than Aaron Nola is going to get paid. But you understand what I'm saying about about that asset yeah. that Logan Gilbert is. He's younger than Aaron Nola. He's got less innings on his arm. He's already probably close to as good of a pitcher, right? He's probably not wildly dissimilar. So I this is he is a huge asset. And if teams are willing to pay that kind of money, obviously they're not, you know, the Phillies weren't just like giving out that contract out of the goodness of their own heart. But I mean he's he's 26, 3.7 ERA. Like it's kind of like Aaron Nola in 2018 something like that and he's has five more years out you know I, I guess i'm not sure who you're arguing against that logan gilbert doesn't have a lot of trade value everyone has conceded this point whatever saying, what the trade is is the question like whether yes. the right deal was there so anything else on the mariners all right let's get to the kraken who for the first time since april 2022 a 579 day stretch won a shootout Thursday at home against the New York Islanders, claiming a 4-3 victory. They went on to win in regulation Saturday night in Vancouver Vancouver by the same final line behind a goal and two assists from Jordan Eberle before the winning streak came to an end with yet another 4-3 scoreline, this time in overtime home loss to Calgary. Seattle Sounders are prepping for the MLS Western Conference semifinals this Sunday, hosting LAFC, the reigning cup holders, after MLS Cup disappointments against the Sounders in both 2019 and 2022, LAFC finally broke through to host the cup last year under new manager Steve Trundolo, beating Philadelphia Union in the final on penalties. They then reached the CONCACAF Champions League final this year, following in the Sounders' footsteps where the Sounders won that a year ago before losing 3-1 to Club Leon on aggregate. LAFC had the second-best goal differential in the West at plus 15, but faded late in the season, allowing the Sounders to move one point ahead for second place and to host this match. But LAFC turned it on to sweep the Vancouver Whitecaps in the West quarterfinals by a combined 6-2 scoreline, and only FC Cincinnati and MLS had a better expected goal differential during the regular season, according to American Soccer Analysis. Gabon national Denise Buanga has emerged as LAFC's leading scorer after joining last August from League One, winning the Golden Boot in his first full season with 20 goals. Carlos Vela, former MLS MVP, had nine goals and 11 assists. And the back line, of course, led by the ageless Giorgio Chiellini, now 39. Wow. And still continuing to collect trophies, although hopefully not this season. So... How far did the Sounders have to get in the MLS Cup playoffs for you to start paying attention this season? Sunday at 6.30 p.m.? Yeah. I'll watch that. It is a convenient time. No Seahawks game this Sunday, obviously. I think I'm in. There you go. Yeah. I will say I've added Husky basketball to the mix of something that I like seriously care about, which is not great for everybody else. But For everybody else <laughs> in your family? No, it's fine for them. The, honestly, it was just like such a. They should play every game at 9 p.m. I know I'm the only person who thinks this. I want way more games starting later. The Iowa listener probably does not think this. But 
it was so convenient just to be like, fuck it, 9 p.m. on a Friday? Sure. Right? Yeah. Same thing with, with this last one. I, I uh, like, seven, 7 o'clock start time on a Sunday. Just like, yeah, I'm in. I want way more of that. It's a weird reversal because I saw none of these two games. We'll get, we'll get to these in a second. Or should we just do men's basketball now and do women's basketball next? Sure. Because, so again, I didn't see a second of these live. I watched the second half of the San Diego State game and the overtime, uh, rewatched that. Have not seen any of the Xavier game. So to, to recap those of you who did not watch, uh, Huskies playing in the Continental Tire tip-off in Las Vegas Friday night, beat beat Sean Miller. That's always That's always good news. Oh, a beautiful thing. And Xavier, 74-71, spoiled Sean Miller's birthday. I guess I there did rewatch go. the second half of that one because I know I remember the broadcasters mentioning it was his birthday. Uh, then Sunday night in the championship, facing off against San Diego State, who had crushed St. Mary's on Friday. Maybe Although a then, very bad St. Mary's team. Yeah, this this might not be that your dad's St. Mary's team. It might not be last year's St. Mary's team because then uh, Xavier went on to crush them in the consolation game on Sunday. If your dad uh, was a St. Mary's fan, like 2010 to 2022 or something. I, I hate to break it. <laughs> I hate to bring it to you. Luca's dad was. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like this might be, but I don't Luke, think there are that many children listening. Too Marco targeted. Uh, <laughs> against San Diego State, a game that like I knew from having seen the score and talked to you and read everybody's comments on the Discord about it, that they forced overtime. And yet even still as I rewatched this and saw that they were like down 12 with two and a half minutes left. Oh, yeah. And down seven without the ball or with uh, San Diego State going to the free throw line. I believe it was Jaden Ledea, their star, going to the free throw line with like a minute 15 left. Like, wait, really? They managed to force overtime in this one? No, it's a bonkers one. It was one of those games that I had to go to the store and it was like, I'm just going to watch one more possession. It's like, I'm just going to watch one more possession, one more possession. I was like, ah, it's down to eight. But then San Diego State would score. And I was like, all right, I can go. Eventually, I was like, I think it was at like 10 or something with about two minutes left. And I was like, this game is over. Turn it on the radio. Moses Wood gets the ball stolen from him. Fouls immediately after that. I don't even know who was on the broadcast because Tony Castricone wasn't there, right? He was in Corvallis. It was another person on the broadcast. And with Jason Hamilton. That's a good question. I didn't see Jay, Jay Ham tweet about that. And I was like, I'm done. That's it. I was like, I am, I am throwing in the towel on this game. And then I get back and I was really trying to like, remember why I pulled up the ESPN app. Uh, but I like pulled up the ESPN app and I looked at my phone and I was like 85, 85 at the beginning of overtime. It took me a second legitimately where it was like, this doesn't compute what's happening here. I was like, something must be broken or I'm looking at a different game or something like that. Like, I, I still don't use I guess you went back and rewatched this. What happened? I mean, San Diego State missed some free throws. They turned the ball over. They they fouled and the Huskies made shots. I mean, it's the kind of kind of game that we're used to seeing happen from Husky opponents. I can't remember the last time UW played a game like this where they yeah, had some wild comments. But I mean, that was one of the things I was thinking about as I was rewatching this is like, Everyone gets so hyper-focused on the mistakes that their team makes. And we're going to get to the UW football and Seahawks sections. I mean, we already talked about the UW game against Oregon State. There were a lot of penalties this weekend and shockingly oh similar God. game scripts in the two games. Like, 
everyone focuses on that and not on the other team's mistakes. And I was thinking about it from the San Diego State perspective. Obviously, they went on to win this game in overtime. If they had lost this, which they very nearly did, it would have just been a horrible loss for San Diego State. A much worse loss for San Diego State than it would even have been a good win for UW. Uh, but it would have been up there with Mike Hopkins' signature wins in his entire tenure, right? For sure, up there with the Arizona game uh, at the end of during his first season when they beat DeAndre Eaton Arizona. That was team. Mike although, Hopkins. Although I will say the DeAndre Eaton Arizona team doesn't quite have the same ring to it this yeah. at this point in DeAndre Eaton's NBA career. Wait, what is he doing? Is he uh, a fun stat about DeAndre Aiden? Is he playing at all? What team is he on? You don't know what team he's on? Wow, is he you on really... the Blazers? Yeah, he's on the Blazers. But he, does I he mean, even play? Of course he plays. First off, Robert Williams got the third got uh, injured. He's out for the season uh, following knee surgery. So their backup center, which you've never heard of their backup center, who's named Jop Reed. No, uh, I, you're right that I haven't. Uh, I feel like the only way you could describe DeAndre Ayton as is toiling away in Portland, right? Like he went there, there. The, whole, the whole thing he was like, he was upset about his offensive role in Phoenix. He averaged 18 points a game last season. He's averaging 12.2 points per game this season. No, but, he's faded to obscurity. But this is, his body is there. The checks are still going through. That's it. This is not the real stat though. It's It's gotten a little better since when I last looked at it. DeAndre Ayton has played 13 games this season. Is a seven foot hyper athletic center in the National Basketball Association. He's attempted nine free throws. <laughs> nine free throws. His free throwing is like he's, you know, Kyle Korver or something. <laughs> it's wild. Anyways, that's not what we're here to talk about. Tom Green will always have that moment. He's uh, <laughs> he's in high school zone, I believe, right? Dom, yeah, yeah, of course. Anyway, I thought that the offense in overtime, I was listening to it on the radio, but it was just like, even the broadcast seemed a little shocked how well they were playing. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I agree. Keon Brooks in that overtime, like this Husky offense has, they have a level that they can get to. Still can't shoot, which I think may be an issue, but like if the shots are going in, if they're making the buckets in the paint, there is a level to this Husky offense that they can get to that I think is different than some of the previous teams that Hop has had. And I think the other thing that really stands out, we'll talk about kind of the big picture in a moment here. I The the execution and the fact that they weren't rattled down the stretch, like that's what happens when you have like all fifth-year seniors on the roster. And the Huskies... I mean, they kept uh, talking about that on the broadcast as well. As I was looking at this number, when I looked at this number two in the nation, according to Ken Palm, in experience, waited for wow. minutes played. In, that is in wild. Rotation. Considering that so few of them have that experience at the University of Washington. Exactly, it's a very unusual situation. There is one other team that is like them that's not quite as experienced, and that's uh, St. John's under new coach Rick Pitino has a bunch of very experienced transfers there. He just so went it, out and got a bunch of really good transfers. As, as I've always said, Rick Pitino and Mike Hopkins kindred spirits. Uh huh. Building similar is is St. John's good under Rick Pitino? Uh I I don't. I, I think they're more competitive. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that they're good. They probably will be. He'll probably build rebuild the program. Oh, there yeah. Right now they are they are eight spots behind UW and Ken Palm. So where is UW and Ken Palm after it. this weekend? 
They're number 58. I, well, I want to talk a little more about these games granularly, though, before we okay. get to the kind of the big picture. Uh, actually, they've dropped to 60 now. I guess some other results happen. Uh, the Xavier game, the one thing that the thing that really stood out in the second half is like it was a very Pac-12 officiated game, a yes. lot of touch fouls. And the weird thing is that we've seen that game played a thousand times. Mm-hmm. This time, UW was the team that adjusted to the way the game was being called. They were one of 11 on threes in the first half. They just stopped shooting threes entirely, which I usually do not recommend. They shot two of five on threes after halftime and just started attacking the rim time after time and fouled out Xavier's starting center, Abu Usman, in after nine minutes and then eventually fouled out their leading scorer, Desmond Claude, in the late minutes of this game. And that was a huge boon for them. I mean, they're, they're able to get to the, to the paint. Having Keon Brooks, I don't know. I just see Keon Brooks and I see a player who... Seems like he's playing kind of a different sport than, you know, aside was Jaden Lee. Was that who it was for San Diego State? Jean like the Jane Ledee. Those two dudes are at kind of a different level than everybody else as far as the size, the athleticism, and the playmaking, right? Frank Kepnong's amazing. But like Keon Brooks is a different kind of player to be that big and be able to get to the paint. The Huskies with Severe Wheeler, the way that he does it. Paul Mulcahy, like, I, for the first time, I understood who Paul Mulcahy was in these games. It's hard in some of the early scrimmages. And I think everybody's trying to figure it out together. This is the kind of team that I feel like is going to get better throughout the season, partially because of how brand new all the players are to the system and to playing together. But, like, during that game, I saw Paul Mulcahy driving, and I was like, oh, he's got, like, actual slash ability. He's able to get to the paint. And to finish sometimes as well. So between Wheeler, Keon Brooks, the two big men, Mulcahy, it's kind of like there are a lot of options to get to the hoop for this UW basketball team, which means that they're going to draw fouls and that they're going to finish some of those buckets occasionally. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other interesting thing, so Frank, you mentioned Frank Kepnong. He really had a breakout game here, his first start of the season, eight points, 12 boards kind of controlled the paint the entire time here. Braxton Mead did not play in this one after halftime. They just played the five starters and Corin Johnson off the bench until the final play of wow. the second half was the only time they went beyond six players. I did, didn't even notice that. It's one of those things where you're watching and it all just feels normal. And at no point you're like, wait, oh. I, I You could definitely tell that Braxton Mead was kind of out of the rotation. And that was something that I noticed. But Frank Kepnong played so well. Like some of the blocks that he had spiking the ball, I saw that. And the way that he has bounced back from that ACL is, I, I don't know. You have to praise modern fucking medicine and science <laughs> out there because Frank Kepnong does not look like he is a year removed from a serious injury like that. I mean, he's still less than a year removed. This That ACL injury, if I recall correctly, happened during the like the conference games, which thankfully they've gotten rid of the December conference games in this last year of what I was, was say, We don't have to worry about it for too long. <laughs> well, I, I, we do have to worry about it because guess who, who originated those games? Oh, God. Yeah. So I don't know if they've they've changed their philosophy, but yeah, it was uh, December 1st against Oregon State was the ACL injury for Frank Kepnong. So we're still less than a year out and he looks awesome. No, I mean, he looks super athletic. He's somebody who's going to be playing professional basketball one way or another. For sure. I mean, he's I believe he still has a year of eligibility left. Yes, he's a uh, he's a fourth year junior. If he wanted to play next year, if he wanted to come back to the University of Washington and they have some other good players around him, 
he could be a beast. Hypothetically, I I I wouldn't want to commit to this. Hypothetically, Frank Kepnon could get a medical redshirt for 2022-23 and play six years. Somebody, there's somebody who's I coming mean, back for a seventh year. Or it's Cam Rising that's coming back for a seventh yeah, year. Cam Rising, yeah. that's right. Uh, no, there there are a lot of things where like during during the season where these people that we've paid so much attention to, all of a sudden being like, oh, we don't have to like, I don't have to worry about Utah anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I to saw worry that about. news and I immediately was like, oh man, that's not gonna be right. oh, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like that's somebody else's problem now. <laughs> we don't have to think about that. There, obviously, there's players in the Big Ten. I mean, you know, men's basketball is not important. It's important as football. We got to hope Zach Eady goes to the NBA. Zach Eady. I mean, Eady and so Kevin. So it would actually they, just they, be fun to play against Zach Eady, though. Purdue was your favorite team today. Really? Were they? Oh, did they beat Gonzaga? How'd they that go? They did beat Gonzaga. They, they beat... pretty much crushed them in the second half. A pretty tough matchup yes. for Gonzaga is the number 11 team in the country. They had to play in the first round of the Maui tournament they had to play purdue the number two team in the country i love it because there are somehow four top 10 teams five of the top 11 are in the maui tournament which this year is being played in honolulu no the fires in lahaina it was a deep maui invitational but anytime the gonzaga is getting beat is amazing but also this team this gonzaga team that's beaten up on the saint mary's of the world or whatever forever Uh, moses Moses woods portland pilots right is that where you went you didn't go to portland state he, he did go to portland yes Moses Woods, Portland Pilots, all of a sudden thinks that they can compete in the Power Five. Well, guess what happens when you play in the Power Five? There are big men like Zach Eady there from our Big Ten to shut you down, Gonzaga. That's what it looks like playing against real opponents. I also think this is not your slightly older brother's Gonzaga team. They they do not have like a serious NBA prospect on their roster. They're unserious people about the sport. Which, by the way, you know how good Chuck Holmgren is now? Is he? He had a game-tying three to force overtime against the Warriors the other night. <sighs> Just had a monster game. It's not good for you. Anyway, it's San whatever. Diego State. It, I mean, if, if there's a team, I'm just going to let it all go. It doesn't matter. I think that's a, that's a good perspective to have. because On, once, the te- once the team is back, I don't care. Like, there's no link to Seattle anymore. Everybody, the NBA is the only loser here. That's the reality. The NBA is... is is straddled with a basketball franchise in Oklahoma city. Like you did it. Congrats. You did. You did an amazing job straddled with that of, of, of they were foisted honestly. Uh, David Stern foisted a franchise on them. They wanted, they wanted to hold cities hostage. They did their best holding cities hostage. Look at Gotham and arena and Sacramento. So if that's what you're looking for, mission accomplished, NBA, the only loser is you. Until they get the $5 billion expansion fee for Seattle or whatever it is. They're going to get that $5 billion expansion fee, but like, there's a reality to it that they need that $5 billion expansion fee. I, I don't think that because the team is in Oklahoma City is the reason they, they can this, use it. All right, let's talk about the San Diego State game. So one of the interesting things... Before Thanksgiving feast... It's Thanksgiving Eve basketball. I'm just like, dog. The NBA tries so hard to own things that the NFL could just pop into. They could just check in for a second, and then it could be theirs completely. The NBA would cancel their fucking schedule. Like, it's just like, oh, Thanksgiving Eve feast. The NFL is like Black Friday's ours too. Get the fuck out of here, NBA. 
I mean, it's not like a national thing for the NBA. I don't, don't think it's going to affect their attendance too much. So one of the interesting things in the San Diego State game, the Huskies went back to zone, something that they had really almost played very little the first three games of the season after largely playing it. One of the other teams I watched in the Maui tournament today, the Maui Invitational today, was Syracuse, who under Adrian Autry, with Jim Beheim being forced out there, is also primarily playing man-to-man now. It's a very interesting transition to see the uh, the entire Bayheim tree go man-to-man this season. <laughs> uh, Synergy Sports Tracking had them playing zone for 11 positions against San Diego State, which ultimately resulted, I think, in 11 points because there was a, a four-point play, yes. a foul, and a made three in there. Uh, but I'm surprised it was only 11 possessions because it felt like it was almost the entire second half. That's what they have it tracked. I, I don't... And I don't think it was dramatically more than that. Mia did play a lot in this one because of Kepnong's foul trouble. He was a plus 13 in 14 minutes. Uh, Kepnong ended up fouling out with like a minute 25 left in regulation. And then Mia came in and then he fouled out with 146 left in OT. Uh, the Wilhelm Breidenbachers got to see some of their guy in OT. And then they finished kind of a curious choice with Anthony Holland in there on a defensive possession. And Jaden Lede ended up scoring over him. They just Holland. had no no answer for Jaden Lede. Can Keon Brooks not defend Jaden Lede, though? Because to me, Keon Brooks is pretty, like, if you were to draw up a person who should be defending him, that's who it would be. But may- maybe the defensive skills just aren't there. I mean, I think the question would be, I don't know if he had any foul trouble in this game. That would be the, the biggest they reason I would say. offensively. Yeah, I mean, Holland, 6'5", 225. Uh, Keon Brooks, 6'7", 210. So I guess he is... He's a he's tall 6'7". Yeah. He's, he's a got big long six, arms. Seven. I thought he was like 6'9". Uh, he only had two fouls in this one, so I guess that wasn't the reasoning, but obviously was carrying a heavy offensive load in this one. When, when uh, they were like, they're going to the guy that I've never heard of before to defend Jaden Ledee, that to me raised a red flag. It was interesting seeing the box score that Paul Mulcahy tied his career high with 13 assists after having 11 total in his previous three games after Zabir Wheeler came back from the injury that sidelined him in the opener. I kind of assumed that they ran a lot more of the offense through Mulcahy and were playing like Wheeler off ball, but then rewatching it it didn't look that way it was just Mulcahy kind of getting those assists in the flow yeah I thought severely Wheeler also played a pretty excellent game as well season uh, high 19 points he finished very very well nobody can shoot of course um which mm-hmm. it, Moses Wood shot finally four of 11 from three on Sunday is that good is four of 11 a good percentage it's good enough yes okay it's good enough and we will take it at UW I mean that's like you know 37 percent I don't know 36. We'll uh, certainly take it. But if Severe Wheeler could just shoot, it's one of those things where you look at kind of like the generations back of Husky point guards who started as players that could finish and then turn into shooters under Lorenzo, right? There are so many of those Loro players, right? Like Justin Dentman, people like that. And it's like if Severe Wheeler could Justin figure Holiday. out, if he could just figure out how to shoot, he would be a very, very complete college basketball player. Bobby Jones, Quincy Pondexter. Uh, Ladie ended up with 34 points and 17 rebounds. He is currently number three in the Ken Palm Kpoi Player of the Year race. No, he was a beast. Which is interesting. He was a bench player last year when they got to the final. 
and suddenly has like stepped into this much larger role and was good enough that I was like, I got to put him in my NBA projection database. Last year they had, who who was the center they had last year? Oh, Nathan Mensa was the guy who primarily played center who's, who's gone now. So big picture, the Huskies have climbed from 78th in Kempom entering the season, which was already their highest at any point since their preseason rank entering the 2020-21 season. So <laughs> we look at the entire post-pandemic era. They started out the best they've been in that period. Oh my God. To now 68th, which is okay. good for 7th in the Pac-12. Like, they kind of, after we, we saw the same old shit in the Nevada loss, this is kind of what we were hoping for from the Huskies depending on what you think about what the season may mean for Mike Hopkins' future in Seattle. but It's still kind of the same old shit for the Huskies because they still played similar, but they are a very good version of it. Well, we'll talk. let's talk a little bit about the differences. And I do think the one thing about the Hop that, you know, we'll see whether they extend him because he only have one year left on his deal after this season. I don't, it'll, it, it, it'll be interesting to see if just kind of going into that season in the final year of his contract is an option or they view it as they have to either extend him or fire him. Uh, they are, I, I think in the grad transfer era, that matters a little less because, you know, if you're talking about a fifth year senior, senior transfer, like they don't care whether the coach is going to be there beyond next year. It yeah. doesn't matter to them at all. And that's just the way you build basketball teams now. So they've shown that they can build basketball teams the way that you need to do it now. Uh, they are 68 so far in adjusted efficiency. They have not cracked the top 100 in adjusted offensive efficiency since 2015-16. Wow. And that would be their highest since 2013-14. Uh, still shooting just 30% on threes, but their 58% on twos would be the highest since Lorenzo Romar's last NCAA tournament team, which was 2010-11. Their 56% assist rate would also be their highest since 2010-11. And only in 2019-20, when Quade Green was at point guard, had they even assisted on half of their baskets in the hop era. Okay. And then with the the man-to-man, defense predictably allowing way fewer threes, just 29% of opponent attempts down from 37% a year ago. Although they still can't really defensive rebound for shit. It's kind of strange considering their size. But like... They're not that big. I mean, I know you said that Brooks plays bigger than six seven, but six seven at power forward is not that big. And then, like Woods, he's also size. not a spacing power forward. Like if well, he was able to, but I'm saying defensive rebounding. I know, but even just like if you're going to be six seven, you should be able to hit a three. But he can't. Um, but it's uh, a, the one thing I didn't say when you talked about Brooks, like just watching him, especially in that overtime, like how under control he is. Oh no, I like Keon Brooks a lot, but it's also just like, dude, take three steps back and be able to hit this shot. Why can nobody do it? It doesn't make any sense. You know, maybe they got the, the three-point line pitted wrong on the practice court. It should be the only thing they work on. Again, Loro was so good at doing it for so many years, turning players from like good athletic players into shooters, into well-rounded players. We'll see. But I, I, I have no idea on Mike Hopkins. Like, If he's able to... I do not have a strong opinion either way. If he's able to do this and build a roster through transfers and experience roster year after year and actually kind of transform what he's doing, I don't know if I specifically think that there's anything that Mike Hopkins is doing that's making players not be good at shooting, but I do think there's also an element of if it's kind of more the same, the team misses the NCAA tournament, they finish eighth in the Pac-12 or whatever, 
and it doesn't feel like there's significant progress. I think that Troy Dannon is probably also looking for his Kalen DeBoer. Like, for sure. I, I think there is a, he wants to lead a, I, who knows? We don't know this. I think there's a good chance that Troy Dannon wouldn't mind leading a coaching search and hitting a fucking home run with that, knowing that the Huskies have money coming from the Big Ten that they can borrow against. They might be clearing some offensive coordinators salary off their staff this year. Uh, but like there there's a reality that they can go out knowing that that money, future money is coming at in 2030 and leverage against that and pay big time money for a coach who all of a sudden this isn't going to, and granted Pac-12 has been generally okay at basketball, but is going to now one of the better jobs in the country. Still as a byproduct of being at the University of Washington, being in the Big Ten, having that kind of exposure. Like it's now elevated past a lot of other jobs and it's become a better job. I mean, the other financial thing that's good to watch here though is what, what, is the distribution of Pac-12 money this season. Like, this is the one place where I think this loss, ongoing lawsuit uh, between Oregon State and Washington State against the departing members of the Pac-12 is relevant to Washington, is, you know, that I think that it, that might affect their decision-making on the men's basketball coach, how much money they have to spend there. I, the other thing I want to say, though, just about this weekend is like, look, those were March games. You're playing against... Xavier, which was a Sweet 16 la- team last year, a very different yeah. roster. You're playing in San Diego State, slightly different roster, was in the national championship game, and you're going toe to toe with both of those teams. Like, that's a very exciting prospect. You're playing it was fun it, too. On the it was same... fun basketball. It was. As unfun as college basketball is, it was the funnest possible version of it. I mean, the Huskies are 27th in adjusted tempo this year, 19th in average possession length on offense. Like they talked about wanting to run more and they legitimately are running more, which doesn't isn't usually how that works. But they're going to be on that same court. They're actually going to be on that same court, I believe, in a little over a week now. By the way, the timing worked out very well. I, I assume this was intentional. UW football plays in the Pac-12 championship in Las Vegas on Friday night. UW men's basketball plays in Las Vegas against Colorado State on Saturday. Are you down there for that? I am not. Okay. Uh, that will be at the MGM Grand Garden Arena, so not the same court. But then they will be back at T-Mobile Arena for the Pac-12 championship in March. And the Huskies have only won one Pac-12 tournament game since they reached the final in 2019, their last NCAA tournament year. They need to at least win one this year and maybe two. And I think that's a realistic possibility. For sure. Are uh, you know- yeah. No, I think I think that's I'm happy to leave that there. At the same time, though, this this was I had inklings of why do we watch college basketball? But at the same time, this was the first time for me in a very, very, very long time under Mike Hopkins watching these games being like, I actually kind of I had know these players. I feel like there's a bit of a relationship with them. And partially it's because they a few of them have been here for a couple of years. But also it's competitive, interesting basketball in a way that it just hasn't been. And there has been this void in Seattle that if it were me and I was if I was pitching for a player to come here, for coaches to come here, as this is one of the 15 best basketball markets in the entire country. And there's not an NBA team. There is a void that is so massive for basketball in the city of Seattle that could be filled 
by UW that they have done a terrible job of filling for a very, very, very long time. So there's such such a thirst, such a demand for basketball here that if they can just get things going a little bit as a program, if this could be the start of something, a stepping stone, then I think it could be huge for them overall. And you got to do it fast because the NBA is coming back soon. All right, UW women's basketball had four starters in double figures and all five score at least uh, nine points as they cruised past Seattle U 80 to 64 on Saturday, despite struggling from three point range, they shot four of 22 beyond the arc, including one of 14 in the first half with uh Jade noble missing a second straight game due to illness. Freshman Savia sellers was part of the starting five had 14 points while El Ladine as a sophomore led the way with 18 points and 12 boards without noble Tina Langley shrunk her rotation to seven players who saw more than five, four minutes of action. Huskies now headed to Honolulu to play in the Rainbow Wahine Showdown, a round-robin tournament where all four teams will face each other next Friday through Sunday. Huskies should be favored in all three of these games. Uh, Idaho State, their first opponent on Friday, has lost to a pair of Pac-12 teams by 17 at Washington State and 32 at Arizona State. Air Force, coached by legendary UW coach Chris Gobrecht, still going strong some three decades almost after she was at UW. Three and one, but got blown out 99-61 at Houston in their one power five test. And host Hawaii looks like the toughest matchup after winning the Big West tournament last season, but comes in one and three and having lost 87 to 40 at Stanford in their season opener. So a real chance here for the UW women to get a tournament championship and move to seven to no on the season. Pac-12 was the like set a record for the longest unbeaten start in women's basketball. Utah finally lost. I forget. They were playing a ranked opponent, but uh, a top 10 opponent, but a uh, very good start for women's basketball in the Pac-12 in this final year. Is there only one flight from Baltimore to Seattle? Uh, return flight? Probably. I'm not a real expert in this. As I've never flown to Baltimore. Ugh. I I was just looking up the weekend of the oh, night. You're, uh, you're trying to go to LA? No, 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 no. I, I was looking. I'm going to Baltimore that weekend in the ninth, and I was looking up what the Seahawks game was that weekend to see uh, if it was a home game or not. But I was like, okay, I can leave early from the East Coast, and because you make up the time, still be back in time for the Seahawks game. They they play on the road at the Niners, so I'm not going to miss a home game for it. But then it's just like the only return flight it's now going to be multi-city because I'm going to have to go from fucking D.C. Anyway, that was me booking travel on the podcast. <laughs> well, maybe if you want to stop booking travel for a minute, let's talk about the Seahawks. They lost Sunday to the Los Angeles Rams in an extremely frustrating game that mirrored the C- the Husky game the night before in many ways, but uh, didn't have the same happy outcome for the Seattle team that that one did despite the uh the lack of scoring in the second half what, what were your takeaways watching this game and i have to fly from dulles at 7 a.m um i <laughs> return by 10 it's actually great for football uh they were bad i don't know it was one of those things when it it's weird being emotionally invested in a sports team because I kind of went into it, the Seahawks score on the first drive, like everything is kind of just moving along nicely, right? And you're thinking in your head, I know not to do this. I wish that I could turn off this part of my brain. I unfortunately can't. Oh, yeah. Which is, oh, we're going to actually like beat the shit out of a team. Finally, finally. 
the Seahawks hit that deep ball to DK up 10-0. And you're like, okay, like they might actually like take open up a big lead here for really the first time all season and just have a comfortable win against a Sean McVay Rams team. I can't believe that's happening. But then they kick that second field goal and you're like, you start, you get the, the, the tingling of like, they're not up. They've dominated this game. They are not up by enough points. I know what that means. I've seen this before over and over and over again. The Rams come down, score that touchdown. And you're like, I, I hate this position that we're in now. You know what I mean? Like this six point lead is such a frustrating place to be considering how the half played out. Then you get to the third quarter, the Geno Smith injury happens, which should have been a penalty. That play happening leading into Drew Locke was so deflating for the Seahawks in general and just the offense at that point, which wasn't exactly humming under Geno after those drives. But having that happen, and then to come back and be in that position at the very end, you know, leading the drive and then not following it through was, it was just such a perfect recipe to be so frustrated about the loss. A game that you know that you could have won, could have kept pace with the 49ers. Look, we'll talk about the 49ers in a second, but kept pace with the 49ers. And it's just like, one way or another, at some point, you're just like, I don't even get shit how this team wins this game. At first, you're like, damn, I hope they win big. But eventually, you rationalize and you rationalize and you rationalize and you get pressured. You The game gets closer and closer and closer. And you're like, I just, okay, fine. Just go win, please. And then to not have won at that point, just like all of the ups and downs. Again, we are so prepared as sports fans for terrible things happening because you feel it so deeply in such a matter of seconds. The up of the DK Metcalf catch on that last drive to the down of the Jason Myers field goal in basically a split second between the two. No, the down was to the Zach Charbonnet draw after that. I I still thought Jason Myers was hitting that field goal. I will say I looked it up. The odds of hitting a 55-yard field goal in the modern NFL are better than I thought. Like, it's basically 55 specifically for whatever reason this season has not been very good. Uh, kickers are 10 of 18 on 55 yard attempts, but they're 17 of 19 on 54 yard attempts and seven of 10. That's actually on... kind of wild. It is. And he, he'd kick so well in the game that you're just like, oh yeah, Jason, Jason Myers has got this, but there is always that like, we're settling for a very, very, very long field goal here. If you go like two yards, either direction, there have been 76 attempts, 54 made this season. So about a 71% chance. Like it was more likely than not when Jason Myers kicked that ball that the Seahawks were going to win the game. But you just could feel it in your bones that they were going to miss after that decision. And and that's the thing that's really frustrating about, about these games and how we talk about football is like, if they if he had hit the field goal, it wasn't a great performance. And if he missed the field goal, it still wasn't a great performance. But it just comes down to this one play ultimately in the end. And the reality was the Seahawks probably should have won this game by quite a bit more. And there were a couple of things that happened that went against the Seahawks along the way that were unfortunate. Obviously, you look at the Devin, Devin Witherspoon pass interference, the Drake Woolen hands to the face. It was probably the right call, but it's just like... The Drake Woolen hands to the face was 100% the right call. And I don't want to hear that it wasn't involved in the play because like that, that to me I is, is the, the most ridiculous is argument. a very strange penalty. 
And it is something that I is feel it, like this. this I don't know. Hit. I don't want hands in my face. And I don't want. I don't want to get tackled. That just being like it is a very it is a strange penalty to be an automatic first down. Well, as well. It's it's but, always what, been a penalty, and Tariq Woolen shouldn't have done it. I, I don't care if it was a an overly harsh interpretation. I don't care about anything. It was a penalty. Don't do it. You agree I, about the, Withers, who, the, the Witherspoon PI though? It was not the, a pass interference. The angle that was on the broadcast made it look like a very poor call. I would like to see the backside angle to see what kind of was happening with Witherspoon's hands. I, I'm not ready to declare that a terrible call, but I, I don't think it was a good call. It was just kind of a lot of frustrating moments, but I was actually thinking about this when I was watching the Eagles-Chiefs game on Monday, and that was, you feel like something, when, when defense is going well, I think that coaches, especially the Seattle Seahawks coach, thinks that's going to continue forever. And there is a reality that if you're not, it's scoring is the most important thing. I'm not saying Pete Carroll didn't even did anything wrong in this game process wise, right? There wasn't like a, they went for the fourth and one at the Rams 37. And then it ended up kicking almost as long a field goal because of the fact that they got penalties on that drive. It really was kind of like, but the, the same thing with that chiefs game, the chiefs defense was dominating so much of that game, right? But then one play happens, right? There's a DeAndre Swift catch or whatever. Devontae Smith gets a couple of catches as well. And all of a sudden, it's like the offense is broken through in this moment. All it takes is a couple of plays. For the Seahawks, it was the long pass interference that happened. It was the pass interference that happened against Spoon in the end zone. Like these little things, you just can't count on defense holding forever. The anticipation should always be that defense defense is holding until they're not. And I feel like that was not exactly how they played the game. But at the same time, they just didn't pick up their downs. And it's something that's happened over and over and over again. And they weren't all terrible calls. They weren't all terrible positions. The Drew Locke tenure, the Drew Locke possessions were particularly brutal having those in that moment. Because I think Gino probably picks up at least a field goal at some point in there. I agree. I mean, I think Drew Locke probably being judged a little harshly on yesterday in terms of We've talked about this before. The evidence, even though I can't find this old football outsider study, suggests that quarterbacks, backup quarterbacks do better when they actually start the game and have the week of practice leading up to it than when they come in as backups mid-game. And he was probably right on the pass to Jackson's fifth and Jigba. Oh, yeah, no, he was right on that one. If JSN is on the same page as him, that's at least a huge gain and maybe a touchdown. Like, he was pretty wide open against that that ram zone uh, cover six i believe is is what i saw that it was so that was a, a tough one to not get to the me pick, the, the pick was a poorly thrown ball but it was also kind of a arm pun i i, I don't, don't i don't i did not have an issue with the interception the, there is i'm happy that drew log played poorly though because the chatter around geno smith needs to change I 100% agree with that. Like the, it's the, be careful what you wish for. The backup quarterback is always the most popular because it's something I talk about constantly. The unseen alternative, you can assume it's, it's a, it could be anything. It could even be a boat. But the reality is probably that the backup quarterback is not as good as the starting quarterback. That the offensive coordinator you want to hire is probably not as good as the offensive coordinator you want to fire. 
like all those things. Like it's easy to imagine how great it's going to be until you have to deal with the actual reality of the situation. And everybody who was calling for Drew Locke had to deal with the reality of Drew Locke on Sunday. And it wasn't no, but great. Going into that last drive, were you pretty excited that Gino was coming back out there? I was. And look, I Gino, was like, oh, hell yeah, Gino, let's freaking go. Until the comms went out. And I also like, look, the, the film validates what Gino said. The run was there to be had with Zach Charbonnet. If they had picked up seven yards on that run and made it a 50-yard field goal, that is, to me, a substantial. Did, did you think thing. they had numbers? You think the film agrees with what? Oh, yeah. Because I looked at it again, and it seems like the Rams are playing it pretty tight considering the situation. I mean, they only had seven in the box at most, maybe six. I mean, they weren't, like, playing to stop the run. I, I thought it was going to gain more yards. I honestly, the entire way down, I was like, we're going to run it on this play. And you could feel it, right? And I just love to do that shit. But the fact that a lot we of times know it's it coming, works, a does, lot of times it works. It does. But the fact that we know it's coming does suggest that other teams, especially teams that play them twice a year in the division and sometimes three times, should also know it's coming. That's kind of, it's just all these stupid small moments, though, like, literally does if there's a block one way or another for Zach Charbonnet and he picks up an extra three yards held by your stats, even an extra yard. Right. I mean, not actually. is that field goal different? If, if there's like a three or four yard difference there, my, if you were like, Hey, the Seahawks are going to have the ball in this situation. They're going to run it. What is your base expectation from how, how many yards Charbonnet is going to pick up? I'm saying seven, it's right. That is, yeah, that is a seven yard part. gain right there. Like, yeah. and he got less. And if he picks up more, so, I, Pete seemed upset with Gino. I think the real issue is they should have clocked it. He was trying to catch them off guard a little bit, but it did mean Which that that was it. Something the Seahawks love to do so much. I I looked at this; it never ended up getting written about. When the Seahawks go tempo after a long completion, they run the ball at an amazingly high rate. After that, every team kind of did what I thought they were going to do this weekend. Like the Huskies got a turnover or something, and I was like, "Let's go deep." Right now, play action, let's go deep. And then they did, and then it was incomplete. But like they, they had almost no deep passes. No, it seemed I, terrible. I, but I mean, at the end of the day, the thing is the Rams are not a very good team. People are giving Sean McVay a lot of credit for like the whole like Sean McVay versus Pete Carroll. Sean McVay's offense was fucking trash in this game. Yeah, the Seahawks just fucking suck. It was really Morris's defense. They're an average Bad. team. They're an, they're an average team. They're 16th in DVOA. They're 16th in DVOA last week. They're probably going to be 16th in DVOA next week, even after they lose by 10 to the 49ers, because that's just who they are. And we were sold a reality and an idea that they were going to be different than that this season. And the one thing that I keep coming back to is like, we're so hyped about this defensive talent. Rico Owens' advanced stats, penalty aside, are terrific. Devin Witherspoon obviously amazing, have invested so much in the safety room, brought back Bobby Wagner, having a strong season, Jordan Brooks playing well, revamped the defensive line, traded a second round pick for Leonard Williams in a deal that looks increasingly more ridiculous by the day. Yeah, I know that one is brutal. They Each of the past few years, you could point to something on the defense. You were like, well, we need to fix this or we need to fix that. Like they fixed all of it and the defense still isn't any good. And at that point, you can only look at the guy who's been the common denominator the entire time. It's I'm not, not sure hurt I, that I'm talking. About. I am not sure if I'm all the way there with you. I'm a hundred percent. That this, I don't know. They've if I turned over every position except for Bobby Wagner, but they turned over. They're him last still, season. they are still very young defensively. Like just, just to be young that, defensively is good. They, they are, they are. I think this defense is going to get better. 
they are very, very close. There were a lot of moments in that game that they looked really good defensively. Yeah, there were like, a lot of moments in that game where Matthew Stafford looked really bad. Your, your, your buddy Matthew Stafford had the kind of game that you think, think of with him. It was, it was a true Matt game from Matthew Stafford. There is still good young defensive talent on this team. That I just is can't so trust close. it in the screen that has not produced an above average defense since the Legion of Boom. I, th- I think the thing that you are underestimating is just how deplete of talent they were for so many years. But they aren't deplete of talent anymore. They have talent at every level, and it's still not translating into even an it average close. defense. It is close right now. This okay. defense is great. Very, how many very top ten? Close. How many top ten picks do you? I mean, uh, like uh, Jamal Adams One? is a top ten pick. Two Witherspoon. Jamal Adams also didn't play. Like that. Well. There is a reality to that. That Jamal well, Adams wasn't out there again. I'm not talking about Sunday. I'm talking about all season. Like all season, the Seahawks have been where they have been in defense, and people keep being like, "Oh, if this guy gets back, when this guy gets back, and then that guy comes back, and they're still not good." And what if we trade a second round pick for Leonard Williams? Also a top five pick, Look, by the way. We all know that Leonard Williams, the, the Leonard Williams trade wasn't a good trade because of where this team is right now. But and that doesn't where the 49ers mean, are right that now. That doesn't mean that the defense isn't going to get better or isn't close to being very good. There's still there is still a reality. They could have probably rushed the passer a little bit better yesterday. That's still something where you're like, they have high-end talent. They don't necessarily I think Boye Mafi is awesome. And Boye Mafi's had such a very good season. But like that they're the two most essential parts of a defense are the secondary coming forward, right? But, and but and you, then your pass rush. Do you think they should invest a second round pick in that position? But it's Leonard Williams is doing something slightly different there as well. But I it was a bad trade. They should have traded for Chase Young. I know they shouldn't have made stupid. any trade because they're they, not good enough to make a trade. They should have traded for Chase Young. So the Niners couldn't have traded for Chase Young. If you want to make an impact, it doesn't on the matter because the Niners are here does and the Seahawks matter. are like um the Niners are at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro and the Seahawks are at Death Valley compared you to still them. try they to aren't get closer. even on the same page. You get there one fucking step at a time, like. Oh, the only way to get to Mount Kilimanjaro is by climbing. This defense is close, though. I don't know why I picked Kilimanjaro instead of Everest. We had this conversation yesterday. It stuck in my mind, apparently. <laughs> climbing Kilimanjaro. <laughs> the, the, the defense is closer than you are giving them credit for, and I think they will get better through the second half of the season. Well, I hope so, because they haven't gotten any better <sighs> compared to last year. Uh, let's talk about Thursday. Because this, the the beauty of Geno Smith coming out injured in this game is that he's got a whole three days off in between games. Uh, Pete Carroll did say on Seattle Sports 710 that uh, I would think so about Geno playing Thursday after being hit on the tendon on the bottom of his triceps. Later at his regular press availability, he told the media that Smith won't likely practice until Wednesday, but has a, quote, great chance to play. We have not discussed that Ken Walker III suffered an oblique strain uh, leaving his status uncertain for Thursday. Carol says he's not currently a candidate to go on IR, so not that This scary. was a little bit of a, a be careful what you wish for a situation because I I definitely, in my head, was like Zach Charbonnet is the better running back than Ken Walker. I believe I may have boldly predicted it at some point that Zach Charbonnet would be the starter. Well, here we are. And uh, I, I still, Zach Charbonnet played well. This is not a critic, criticism of Zach Charbonnet. I love Zach Charbonnet. But the both of them together is really what this backfield needs to be as explosive as possible. Zach Charbonnet played fine. Running backs don't matter. Uh, Seahawks are hoping the three days off will hope Jamal Adams. You this way too much. 
running backs do not determine the success or failure of a team's run game, which is determined by their quality of their offensive line, their run scheme, and their pat more than anything, the quality of their passing ability. They're bad uh, running backs. Jamal Adams, who did not play, oh, I agree with that. Jamal Adams, who did not play at the Rams, as we discussed, uh, due to lingering soreness, soreness in the knee after last year's quadriceps tendon tear, hoping the three days off will help uncertain his status. <laughs> Hope the three days off will help. I mean, it's more than that in his case because he didn't play on Sunday. I think uh, he's probably going to play. The Niners suffered a safety injury on Sunday when first All-Pro first team pick last year, Talanoa Hufunga, suffered was an ACL. First t- team All-Pro last year as a rookie. Yeah, he was a rookie. Shit. I he's been in the league for year. a long period of time, hasn't he? Like, no, that's maybe his second year. Uh, yeah, I guess that was his second year. Okay. Uh, he was replaced by third-round pick Jair Brown, who had a game-sealing interception as the Niners won on Sunday. The Niners started 5-0 and with an average victory margin of 21.8 points per game capped by their 42-10 blowout of the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football before suckering the Seahawks into making a win-now trade by losing three in a row, scoring precisely 17 points in each three, each of those three. Then... The day after the Seahawks traded for Leonard Williams, they traded for Chase Young. Uh, Debo Samuel was injured early in the first game of the losing streak, missed the next two games. So too did all-pro first-team left tackle Trent Williams. Both returned last week at Jacksonville, and the San Francisco offense has subsequently returned to form in back-to-back wins, beating the Jags by 31 points in Tampa Bay at home by 13. Niners with those was that, was that a pause of, like, you can't talk shit about this? You have nothing no. to say here. <laughs> I mean, I was I was letting you say something if you wanted to. <laughs> it was it was a dramatic pause. I have nothing to say. I have no comment at this time. The Niners are back up to number two in DVOA, including top ranked offense number eight on defense. They are one of four teams in the top ten both ways, with Baltimore, Kansas City, and Dallas being the others. I Niners just don't get why the Seahawks are so bad at this. Like that's the thing that really is frustrating about the Eagles is the Eagles go out. And look, there, there's always a price to pay. Actually, the Rams are kind of bad at team building, I should say. Like, yeah. I don't think that's going to happen to the Eagles in the same way. The Rams went way too all in. The Eagles have not given up that much. And all of a sudden, they're like, it's A.J. Brown. It's DeAndre Swift. It's Kevin Byard. It's drafting obvious players. They are so good at doing the things that are literally fucking obvious to do. If you're like, hey, what was the what was the pick for Kevin Byard? Like a fourth round, fifth round pick? It's just like, should we do this? Yes, of course we should do this. Uh, it was a fifth rounder and a sixth rounder, and Terrell Edmonds they gave up for Bayard. I mean, they did give up a first rounder for AJ Brown. That that was a lot. But I mean, look, the Seahawks do occasionally it, make those moves. Quandre Diggs was this, that kind of move. In the same, okay, they've done it once. <laughs> well, how many Not times are we going to point to the Quandre Diggs trade? They they signed Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett for the right price. I mean, the Russell Wilson train, but like Carlos Dunlap was a very low pick that they got him sure. for. I, I'm not saying that they, I would not say that they don't ever do this. They just give they up way very, too much sometimes too. Very bad at this. In the same way that the the Niners on the, like, well, so the Eagles, where did they get the draft pick they drafted Jalen Carter with? They just like traded back or something. I believe so, but they may have had an extra one to start with. Which they shouldn't have had an extra one if they traded for AJ Brown in that previous draft. It's, I, it's very frustrating that the s- smart teams are just very, very good at this, and that the Seahawks, when they trade for thirty whatever year old Leonard Williams, 
the the Niners the very next day. I mean, literally, this is not that old. That's not the issue here. But it's also, it's for half season of Leonard Williams. It's just like, why are you trading a second round pick for this? What is the thinking here? Are you going to win a Super Bowl? No, then don't do it. The Niners turn around and trade for Chase Young to be opposite Nick Bosa. Like, which one sounds scarier to you? For not even the same draft pick, their draft pick will be a worse draft pick. They they traded a worse draft pick for Chase Young than the Seahawks traded for Leonard Williams. Every Not every other team. There are many teams who are horrible at this. But like, it's the, frustrating. The Eagles traded 16 and 19 to the Saints in 2022 for 18 in the Saints 2023 first round pick, which turned out to be number 10 overall. And then they moved up one spot to get Jalen Carter. Again, your silent glaring at the at the no, camera I mean, is not that good of podcasting. Can't complain that much because of the Russell Wilson trade. Like that makes up for a lot of bad decisions. But it's also kind of funny seeing Russ and Geno Smith being kind of like advanced stats wise pretty close to each other right now. In this moment, if we are being honest with ourselves, I would rather have Russell Wilson as the quarterback of the Seahawks. Would yes. I rather have Russell Wilson minus Charles Cross, minus Boye Mafe, minus Zach Charbonnet, minus Devin Witherspoon? Obviously not, but apples to apples. Like Russell Wilson, obviously, because of all those other things, needs to be way better. But like the Seahawks have a quarterback problem to figure out. You know, that that's what's going on here is Geno Smith is obviously not the long-term answer at quarterback. They're not going to win a Super Bowl if Geno Smith is the quarterback. So at some point, you have to find the quarterback. Well, you know, it'd be a great way to find a quarterback that would solve a lot of problems, especially if you traded a bunch of draft picks to draft a quarterback who didn't turn out to be the guy. What would that if, be? If you drafted one with your drafted the NFL's top rated quarterback with the last pick of the NFL draft. That's a great, great outcome. Uh, the 49ers number one by a mile in EPA on dropbacks. <sighs> the distance between them and number two Dallas is bigger than the gap between the Cowboys and number 13. Oh, in God. passing DVOA. Worst game is usual. Only okay. They're eighth in EPA per play just ahead of the Seahawks. But the intriguing thing is, statistically, it's a lot less about the yards after the catch this this season. They still lead the NFL in yards after catch per completion at 6.4. But they're 7.3 completed air yards per completion, according to SIS tracking on Pro Football Reference, are second highest in the league after Houston and up from 5.4 last year. So Brock Purdy, when he took over, was higher in completed air yards per completion last year at 5.9 than Jimmy G, who was at 4.8, which is like basically nothing. It's like screen passes every play. Yeah. But he's playing way more aggressively this year while still completing a league high 70% of his passes. Last year, his completion percentage over expected was negative. It's now the fourth highest in the league. Intriguingly, he has had five picks during their three-game losing streak has not thrown in any exception in any other game this season. Very strange. Uh, no, Brock Purdy looks awesome right now. I'm just being honest. Like I, as little credit as I want to give to Brock Purdy, some of those throws against Jacksonville, watching them live were like, oh fuck. If this is what the Niners are going to be, this is a terrifying offense because it wasn't like what we talked about with USC, right? Like the Caleb Williams stuff, which by the way, we didn't talk about this 
the Rams kind of trying to run the USC flea flicker. Oh yeah, that was completely the, oh. biffing it. God, that was the moment I was like the most excited of the entire game. It was oh. right after the Geno injury. I mean, I I the, both the pick and then Matthew Stafford taking a pretty crushing blow was just like this play went about as badly as a play can go. With, you without it, that should have been roughing the passer on Aaron Donald. Yes. Okay. When he hit Gino? Yeah, it should have been roughing the passer. I actually think that roughing the passer should be, there should be degrees to roughing the passer. I think roughing the passer, it, it, again, I, I don't love that you have to add nuance for referees, but there's a reality that roughing the passer is, it literally, every penalty is a nuance penalty. I think roughing the passer should either be a 15-yard penalty or be an instant ejection. Like, there has to be something more extreme. By injuring the other team's quarterback, you are inherently hurting the product of football you know what i mean and so if that's if that's what is going on like even the fletcher cox play that they litigated so much if patrick mahomes who dollars and cents wise to the nfl after travis kelsey is the most valuable asset that the league has aside from the franchise or whatever (laughs) the shield yeah the shield is the most valuable thing but like and the you know the cowboys but like as an individual player, Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, Kelsey's probably ahead of Mahomes right now, is the most valuable individual player to the NFL. If Fletcher Cox injures Patrick Mahomes on a roughing the passer and gets a 15-yard penalty and a small fine, that is not an equivalent. In the same way that Aaron Donald gets to take a fucking massive hit against Geno Smith, fortunately he wasn't more seriously injured, and it loses the game for the Seahawks, like that is this 15 yards is not enough fans cheering for a roughing the passer penalty is such a fucking crazy thing to think about. Also to me where it's like, woo, you might've injured our quarterback. Like this should be way more extreme. People should be litigating roughing the passer and be like, Oh, you should call less. They should be calling. You should be, I don't know. It's a very complicated territory because people should be able to hit the quarterback when they're sacking him. But at the same time, anything that is slightly excessive should be such an extreme penalty. People always say, what are they trying to make a two-hand touch? And I'm like, eh, are you sure that's not going to be the future of football? Flag football? Uh, it's not going to be the future. It's eh, just not. Are you sure? It's, I'm a long sure. enough timeline? Are you sure? Uh, it's, it's not sure? interesting. There wouldn't be fans for a two-hand touch football game. They have already, the hits, the hits have been, been so be a lot taken of, out of the league in a lot of ways. A lot, lot of, of kids ways. who grew up playing two, flag football. A lot of kids, including baby as fantasy genius. I will tell you, there are not a lot of people from Seattle, Washington playing in the NFL, and there's a reason for that. This is a sport that is dominated not by Seattle, Washington. Over a long enough timeline. Uh, Any, anyway. Back to the Niners. The biggest should, driver. should have been a roughing the passer. The biggest driver of their success on deeper passes or beneficiary, depending on your perspective, is Brandon Ayuk, who's averaging 19.3 yards per catch up from 13 last season and highest among players with at least 25 catches. If you look among players in the NFL, with at least 30 targets, a 70% catch percentage, which he's at 70.5, the next highest yards per target is 15.5. From Tyreek Hill. I was going to say Tyreek Hill must be up there, right? So, like, that's almost four yards more. Brandon Ayuk has been so good. And I have to concede that we debated this Debo Samuel's relative value value relative to Brandon Ayuk's. And you were correct on this one. Brandon Ayuk, another player who I believe was a draft pick that they traded for, I want to say. 
I that's that's a long time ago. I can the, I can look it up. But that's gonna take a minute. He's probably under not probably he's certainly underrated as a receiver. But people talk about Trent Williams, and and I do think that Trent Williams and Debo Samuel being out there plus George Kittle, like the the 49ers offense to be excellent, kind of requires everybody. Be the best in the NFL. But I mean, they still lost to some pretty mediocre teams without some of those players. I mean, the Bengals game, they actually were pretty good offensively. Their defense was kind of a letdown in that game. And they drafted. This, when, you, when, you, when I say that teams do things right, you go out just in the very moment that I say you do things right as a franchise and draft a kicker in the third <laughs> round. You end up cutting, right? Did they cut Jake Moody? I don't know. I guess not yet. Uh, but, he, but their special teams is bad. So, look, the Niners don't do everything, right? That's fair. Uh, yeah, yeah, the 49ers are just a curious mix of decisions. As, no, no, there, there are some, like, genius You've discussed decisions. offline that I, like, credit all of their good value plans <laughs> to their analytics department. And then the other ones, they got overrun. They weren't listening to them. Yeah, Parag Marathe gets every, credit for every good thing that happens. And every bad thing that happens is John Lynch's fault. <laughs> oh, the eye test came in. But Brandon Ayuk, I think, is probably definitely the most underrated receiver in the NFL, and probably at this point, the best receiver, or at least the most valuable receiver in the entire league. When you talk about that catch rate, that many yards, and with that yards per catch, it is, it's literally math that shouldn't make sense. You should not be able to catch the ball at that degree, that many yards downfield. They traded up from 31 to 25 to get Ayuk. He was the 25th pick in the draft. Are you kidding me? This is what somebody's going to say about Roma doing say though. Pretty like next year watching Rome, I was like, damn, I, I don't even know if that's going to happen. He might be a top 10 pick. He might be like Garrett Wilson territory. I love Roma doing say. I'm hoping they're going to say it about Jackson Smith and Jingle. That's, that's my hope. Rome better. We got a way to go. Ways to go on that one. Ways to go. Uh, George yeah, Kittle. You, if right now, today, you were like, you could, I, I want to keep Rome on the Huskies. But, like, if you were, like, the Seahawks, Jackson Smith and Jigba's gone, you get Roma Dunze as a senior in college, give me Roma Dunze. Not even close. I mean, Not are, even close. They're the same age. Uh, George Kittle has been healthy and is averaging 11.6 yards per target with a team high five touchdowns. Debo Samuel, the least effective of their top three receivers, at a mere 9.9 yards per target. Christian McCaffrey targets his average 7.2 yards each, but have an excellent 61.5% success rate. McCaffrey leads the NFL with 825 rushing yards and is averaging 4.7 yards per attempt. They have leaned heavily on him with backup Elijah Mitchell only getting double-digit carries once all season. The Niners' defense not quite as stout as last season when the 49ers led the NFL in DVOA under now Texans coach D'Amico Ryans. Steve Wilkes replaced him as coordinator. Uh, They have declined from second in both EPA against passes and EPA against runs. They're now fifth against passes and a a fairly shocking... uh, what, What are they here? A fairly shocking 28th in EPA per play against them on runs, but they face the second fewest rushes in the league because of the fact that their game script means that they're leading most of the time. Uh, Sack rate ranks 21st. It was only average last season when Nick Bosa had a league leading 18 and a half sacks. 
He's been held to five and a half thus far, helping in the explain the deal for Chase Young, who has a sack and a half in his first two games, with the team combining for nine sacks in those two. So that's an exciting thing. The 49ers <sighs> pass rushes back. I, I think this is definitely a Niners team that you can score against, though. Like, the, you know, depending on Geno's health, stuff like that. And and even if Gino isn't healthy, Drew Locke's going to be taking reps this week in practice. I still love the Seahawks receiving core. I still love this offense. The third downs have been very, very frustrating, very, very brutal. The ideal situation to happen in this game, it'll be so annoying. Everything about it will be annoying. Is the ball needs to go to Christian McCaffrey as much as possible. They need the ball in Christian McCaffrey's hands because that means that the ball is not going 19 yards down the field of Brandon Ayuk. Be stout at tackling. Give Devin Witherspoon a chance to go make some hits in the flat. Like that is, I saw some people talking online about how uh, basically last week, the Buccaneers, who I think defense is probably bad statistically, maybe extremely bad. Uh, we're just giving up everything in short yardage. And there that is a good game plan against the 49ers. You can't give up big plays and the big plays to the receivers. It yeah, has t- to t- be. T- 12th in defensive DVOA. They're not, they're actually not that bad at that. End. Wow. Okay. So better than the Seahawks? Yeah, well, substantially better than the Seahawks. We're it, 19th. It was, it was in San Francisco. It was perfect conditions. Here it'll be cold. I think it's going to be clear on Thanksgiving night. But like, they have to. It has to be on the linebackers going and making plays. It has to be on Reek Woolen, on Devin Witherspoon, Hope Witch, Ball Adams, uh, Julian Loves, Quandre Diggs, making those tackles and being stout, but getting the ball to people who are not Brandon Ayuk. Honestly, like again, it is so frustrating. You hate to watch it, but Debo Samuel on end arounds, screen passes, shit like that. That's what they have to make the Niners' offense into. Because if it is that offense, it is a less efficient, more frustrating less efficient offense than the one that is going down the field because that is a truly terrifying offense. That's the one that scores and scores quickly. The one that takes its time that requires a bunch of possessions to get down the field. That's one that mistakes can happen. One holding here, one holding there. All of a sudden they're behind, they're behind the ball turnovers. That's what the Seahawks need to force in this game. And that is a Pete Carroll motherfucking defense right there. That is what he wants to force. That is what they will force in this game. And they may still lose because of it, but at the same time, I actually think that Pete Carroll's defense is a little bit more suited to put the Niners, to make the Niners take the thing that actually is less valuable to them because it is quote-unquote open or whatever. I mean, look, that's been the history of this. Is like the Seahawks have struggled against the Rams in division, but have been relatively pretty good against the Niners in division. It's a relative, and obviously they got, they got crushed in last year's playoff game in San Francisco. Hey, it was close at halftime. <laughs> you gonna bang that I stopped watching at halftime, so <laughs> I literally stopped watching at halftime to go coach a child's basketball game. But I I think this Niners team the, offensively it's clearly their best team that they've had. I mean as long as they're healthy. Probably gonna are. win. Like the, there's no argument to be made that the that the Niners aren't going to be obviously they are what are they seven point favorites in Seattle? But the other thing about this bend but don't don't bend but don't break strategy is it forces the Seahawks offense to be off the field for long periods of time. And we know what tends to happen then. It's a lot of three dots and like increasing times of possession. I'm I'm a little bit optimistic. I'm a little bit optimistic if Gino is healthy. I think the third downs are a little bit randomness. 
they can get down the field against the Snyder's team. They, they're going to be able to pass the ball a little bit. They can run against the Snyder's team, use some of that pressure against them. Uh, I think Charbonnet is going to have another good game in this one. And they've got such a, a large and div- diverse receiving core that we're just so close to tapping into, but haven't quite figured it out yet. And it's, it's a little bit of inches. At some point, the Seahawks are going to put together a game on offense, and it's going to be like, oh, that is what they can do. Because they actually are very, very close to something like that. Uh, the way that Geno's thrown the deep ball has been excellent. Like, he's hit, I mean, you saw the play that he hit the DK. When they were pressured on that last drive, like, I they, they did what they had to do very, very quickly. The Niners are a better defense than the Rams are. But I do think that this offense when pushed into a situation to have to try to score as much as possible all the time. I think they actually can do that against this defense, especially without Talano Hufanga as well uh, on that injury. Like that is something that the Niners have not had to face when last year they were the best defense in the NFL. I think he's a more important piece than people give him credit for. Maybe people give him credit, but, but like it is, it'll be a bigger, it'll make a bigger difference in this game than people realize. All your optimism has pushed me down to twenty five percent chance of victory. I got an injured starting quarterback. Not that it matters. But right. An injured running starting running back going against the best team in the. In, I'll, I'll give it a twenty eight percent. I'll give it a twenty eight percent. It's Thanksgiving night. Like shit can happen. It's see that crowd is going to be amped up. There are going to be a lot of Niners fans in the building as well. It is going to be a loud, wild night in Seattle. I'm just excited for it in general. I hope it's a close game. Never been to a game on Thanksgiving before. So I just, I hope there is a repeat of the Seahawks ending the Jim Harbaugh era in San Francisco. You think they're going to end the Kyle Shanahan era? (laughs) I don't think they're going to end the Kyle Shanahan era, but I do think that there's a chance. Somehow weirdly they're going to end the Jim Harbaugh era in Michigan. Jim Harbaugh might end the Jim Harbaugh here at Michigan. May have had enough. Well, as you said, it's already the end of an era for the Apple Cup. The last time these two teams are going to meet as conference rivals or the foreseeable future. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of Huskies state in the college football playoff. Because I okay. think they have already started to become more of a talking point. And depending what happens, we're recording this before the release of this week's college football playoff rankings on Tuesday, may become even more of a talking point afterwards. Because after they went on the road and beat Oregon State, a team that was number 10 in the AP poll, number 11 in the college football play- poll in the CFP rankings, like it's become even more clear that the Huskies have played the hardest schedule of any of the undefeated teams thus far. And yet, best case scenario are going to be number four when the college football playoff rankings are released. And that's only if they jump Florida State. I think they will be number four for what it's worth. I also think that. That's that's my firm expectation. And look, we have to go way back to find an example of a team that kind of confounded the statistics quite like this year's Huskies with their ability to win a bunch of close games without necessarily impressing statistically. Uh, They sit 13th in ESPN's FPI, 8th in FPI efficiency, which is only performance this season. You have to go all the way back to 2022, a time so long ago that the Pac-12 still existed. Washington, Washington State were still in the same conference. (laughs) A time so long ago 
but Twitter was still what it was called. Back then, a team called TCU entered the championship week, number one in strength of record, number 15 in FPI because they had come into the season, I think, unranked uh, in Sonny Dyke's first season as head coach, and number six in FPI efficiency. The playoff committee ranked them fourth in arena rival week, moved them up to third after, and you'll never believe this. This was how long ago this was. Ohio State and Michigan were both undefeated going into wow. the matchup at the end of the regular season. Uh, TCU then lost to Kansas State in the Big 12 title game, but still finished third in the playoff rankings by virtue of losses by the two teams directly behind them, LSU and USC, and the committee's desire not to have a Michigan-Ohio State rematch in the semifinals. So this is the precedent here. I mean, I, I think that we're at that part of the year where people act like things are not going to happen that we know are going to happen, if that makes sense, such as Michigan and Ohio State are going to play each other. And we get here every single season. There are upsets in championship week every single year. Hopefully, knock on wood, not one of those. But Well, fair point, actually. I think depending on what happens with Oregon in, in the on Saturday against, or on Friday against Oregon State, and then if in the likely event they lose the uh, territorial cup between Arizona and Arizona State, I think we're actually hoping for one of the upsets on on championship weekend. This is that time of year when it feels like everything that's going to happen in college football is predestined. That we know exactly what's going to happen, but ultimately the games have to be played. Upsets do happen still in the remainder of the season. And that's how you end up with a situation like TCU. Like you probably would have looked back at it and said if they had lost in that game to Kansas State. I mean, that's that is a loss. The only similarity that could that could have to UW is if Arizona ends up in the conference championship game and then beats UW in that conference championship game. Then it would be eerily similar to TCU. And then the teams around them lost. But like if UW goes to the conference championship game, plays against Oregon again, and loses, that is a much stronger loss than anything that was on that TCU record. At the same time, you talk about that, and TCU went into the playoff, and in a thrilling, one of probably the best playoff games that ever has been, at least in the semifinals, at a thrilling game against Michigan, and went to the championship, where then they played. Uh, <laughs> they appeared. <laughs> TCU also was there. Uh, but it, wait, probably... wait, wait. What, what was the line in the tweet last week about uh, the MVP balloting? Hold on, hold on here. I gotta, I gotta dig that up because it applied to us in the uh, Pelton cast MVP voting. Uh, uh, JP Kel Raleigh was also ballot. <laughs> TCU was also championship game. Uh, Ultimately, all UW can do is go and play the games in front of them, and all of the debate, the consternation, things like that, it doesn't really matter in the end. They are undefeated. They have been through a gauntlet of a, a schedule. I think Oregon State ended up a little bit underrated as a byproduct of being Oregon State. If this had been the number 10 LSU team or something like that or whatever, like statistically, Oregon State was not really punching above their weight class. You know, Oregon State was just a good team. So that is a very good victory that UW got at the same time. It wasn't a dominating victory. I can accept that. I think they are probably where they should be. And if they are number four after this week or after tomorrow, 
I think they are where they should be. There's I'm, really you can have played the hardest record, and I I hate making this argument as a UW fan because they should be in, but like you could have played the hardest record, but also not be one of the four best teams, and if or not be one of the three best teams. And right now, Michigan and Ohio State probably have won in more dominating fashion because that is a reality that we understand that winning in dominating fashion ultimately is a good predictor of the future, but. And, winning and, is also important. Winning is also important, and winning is the first and foremost goal. The number one goal is winning. The number two goal is winning in dominant fashion. So anybody who would argue that Oregon should be ahead of UW, that is completely wrong. So I because think the thing you do, the reason you play, is to win the games. That is number one. You don't get more points by winning by a lot. It is, however, probably predictive of the future by winning by a lot, and that is an important thing to look at. So that is why UW should be in fourth right now, and depending on what happens between Michigan and Ohio State, I mean, we know that somebody's going to win. If UW wins, they should go into conference championship week at number three. Assuming that they win the Apple Cup. If, if they win the Apple Cup. Uh, the, the problem for the Huskies relative to TCU and why this does matter is, in the event you were number one in the college football playoff rank it's not that that is realistic but if they followed strength of record like then you would have that opportunity to potentially lose one of these last two games and still make it in and as fourth or fifth especially because there's just so many too many of the teams that are behind them are playing the teams ahead of them so like yeah georgia might lose in the sec championship game they would lose to Alabama and that wouldn't do the Huskies any good because then Alabama would just jump them if they lose. So like, again, they just have to win out. That's the only scenario here. I don't see a way that they make it to the only scenario, but I think it is. It's it's the best scenario. I I mean, Alabama loses to Auburn, you know, maybe then and and beats Georgia. Maybe there's something like that. There are, I guess some complex scenarios, but they're not real. Likely Texas is in there where Texas, like the same argument right now that the Huskies could make if they lose to Oregon is, well, the only loss is to a team that you're going to put in the playoff. Well, Alabama's only loss right now is to Texas. That's a team that's in the playoff. Like, you know, that would be potentially in the playoff. So we've played a much more dominant schedule though. Like if our, our loss, or Ohio State, Michigan, there's there are a lot of scenarios that could play out. I don't even think we need to stress about those right now. About worrying about what it'll be, about what the scenario will be if the Huskies lose, because right now they haven't lost. So they just need to be in the position that they are in right now. And if they win, go into that championship week as the number three team. That's fine. That will be an appropriate place for UW to be. It'll be an excellent place for UW to be. And that's all that they can really worry about. Place for them to be. So ultimately, like all of the consternation about things, all of the worrying about losing is just like, fuck that right now. Why are we telling ourselves that we're going to lose to Oregon? Because Oregon's crushed Colorado, right? Like, I mean, I I just, I can't quite get there. Do I think that Oregon is a very good team? Obviously they are, but I'm not going to sit here and fret and say that we're obviously going to lose to Oregon, who we've beaten in back-to-back games and could have beaten even more comfortably. Like that, that I do not agree with the automatic assumption that UW is going to lose to Oregon in the well, conference. Of course not, because game. And to your point about TCU, like it's one game. Anything can yeah. happen. The Huskies are underdogs if they play Oregon. There's no question about it. I, I underdogs win convinced. all the time. 
I think there is a legit chance, and this is part of the people underrating Oregon State. I think there is a legit chance that Oregon State goes in there and beats Oregon this weekend. Of course. Anything can so, happen. Oregon has a harder game this weekend than UW has. But Washington State could beat UW. Yes. Possible. Uh, one of the concerns for the Huskies going into this game is that running back Dylan Johnson had his foot stepped on Saturday, and Ryan Grubb, offensive coordinator, said it was, quote, killing him at the end of the game. Johnson is in a boot right now, but Grubb said he's hopeful of playing on Saturday, and Keelan DeBoer said he's very optimistic about Johnson playing this week and also optimistic about the return of linebacker Alfonso Tupatala after Tupatala sat out on Saturday night. One thing about Dylan Johnson that, okay, retroactively going back and looking at this, crucial third down play in the game to seal the game was not a handoff to Dylan Johnson. It was a pass to Romo Dunce. Do we think that that injury may have played a part in the Huskies passing on that third down? It may have played a part, but also probably the fact that they have the, I don't know if he's still the Heisman favorite, but uh, at least one of the leading contenders for Heisman and uh, one of the best wide receivers in the country probably was a big factor in that too. All right, let's talk about the Cougs, who started the season 4-0. They entered the rankings after beating number 19 Wisconsin in their second game and got as high as number 13 after beating Oregon State 38-35 in their Pac-12 opener. And then lost six in a row, several of them lopsided, capped by losses at Arizona State, home to Stanford, and at Cal against three consecutive teams rated worse than them. But then Washington State erupted to blow out Colorado 56-14 to on senior day last Friday and keep their hope of bowl eligibility alive. They will need to win on Saturday to reach a bowl this season. Quarterback Cameron Ward has taken a step forward, although not as dramatic as it seemed early in the season. His 66 QBR ranks sixth among Pac-12 quarterbacks, which all five ahead of him are in the top 12 nationally, so he's kind of alone in the Pac-12 middle class, uh, up from eighth last year. He's completing an identical percentage of his passes to Michael Penix Jr. in a modified air raid, but uh, for just 11.8 yards for completion compared to 14.1 for Penix. The other big thing holding him back statistically, Washington State has allowed 33 sacks to UW7. Seven sacks? Oh my God. Yeah. It's insane. Okay. Nothing's always pretty good too, but yes. Uh, Ward still has a year of eligibility remaining that he could decide to return. Uh, the Cooks have three receivers over 750 yards this season, all three in the top 12 in Pac-12 receiving EPA. Lincoln Victor leads with 78 catches, but Josh Kelly has been more productive at 15.4 yards per catch and has a team-high seven touchdowns. A big issue for Washington State all season, their impotent running game. Leading rusher Nakia Watson has just 257 yards on 3.4 yards per carry. And the Cougars have combined for 84.7 yards per game on the ground, the nation's third lowest mark out of Colorado and Hawaii. To some degree, obviously, that's a future feature of an air raid system. But you go back to the Mike Leach era, they typically ran efficiently on the rare times that they did run. And that's a big difference from this season. On the other side of the ball, teams have run against the Washington State defense at the second highest rate in the Pac-12 with varying levels of success. They gave up at least 235 yards on the ground three times, including the win over Oregon State. Oregon ran for 7.8 yards per carry in beating the Cougars, but overall their run defense ranks about average, same as their pass defense. They've allowed 300-plus passing yards just twice against Arizona and Colorado State, though Bo Nix had nearly 12 yards per attempt against the Ducks through just 25 passes in that game. 
Uh, Washington State's defense had as many sacks five against Colorado as during the previous five losses combined. Seems unlikely given that stat that they repeat that success. They would Saturday. be almost half this or almost equal to the sacks that the Huskies have given up all season. Uh, they're they're kind of just an average team in a lot of ways, yep. aside from running the ball. And it's not a great formula for coming into Seattle in this game for a UW team that knows in the rivalry game the last time these two teams were playing in the Pac-12, knows that they need to win to get to the conference championship. I don't like their odds against these UW receivers who still they, haven't... They do not win, need to win to get to the conference championship. Or, or I guess, to keep their playoff hopes alive. Yeah. Uh, but these UW receivers still haven't put together a, an excellent game just yet. There's been quite a few weeks in a row of Michael Penix being good but frustrating. Uh, basically, all the way back to USC, you know, Dylan Johnson's turned it on since then. Fortunately, the run game's kind of hit at the same time. But it would be nice to have a game where it's Jalen, Jalen, and Rome all playing at a high level and getting in the mix, especially as we're heading toward the conference championship. Uh, and I think that's the kind of game that they could have against this Wazoo defense. If Dylan Johnson is still in serious pain, I do think this is the kind of week that they could give him a week, rest, come back the following week, see what Will Nixon and Tybo Rogers are able to do in the backfield, give them a full week of reps. You know, they've been, when you look at it statistically, like obviously Dylan Johnson has dominated those carries, but Will Nixon has been very good. Tybo Rogers has been okay. And if if they have to have those backs as the starters for a week, given the line, given the holes that they'll have, given the passing game, I think they will still run the ball effectively against this Wazoo defense. I agree. I would be more comfortable if it was Dylan Johnson back there. And I think, you know, that the, the, the most important game is obviously the next game on the schedule, but having Dylan Johnson healthy for the conference championship is the number one goal. Having a getting Jalen McMillan to the point that he's in the rhythm of the offense. Like I think it's important to get him back up to speed, get some catches in this game to get him established into the offense again, in the way that he was at the beginning of the season when he looked dominating in those first couple of games, if they could have the Jalen, Jalen and Rome offense moving this offense, that was the best they've played all year, right? Was those first handful of games with all the receivers together. So if they could get that back, something that I think they've actually seriously missed in the offense. Look, we love Jack Westover, but those three receivers all clicking together. If they can get that against Wazoo and have it humming, get Michael Penix over 300 yards, a comfortable victory. It would be a beautiful way to send them off to the conference championship. I agree. And look, the weather conditions should be favorable for it. It's going to be crisp as it often is at the end of November, but looks to be completely dry on Saturday night. Is it, is it likely will be on Thursday as well? Uh, you know, the, this is going to be a test of the actual football teams and not their ability to handle the elements, which yes. is the way I prefer it. Uh, but also have a healthy amount of fear about Wazoo, you know, like, with that team coming in with the goal of playing spoiler, making, you know, becoming bowl eligible. I will always be afraid of them. It's something that UW has handled quite well in the last long time <laughs> against Wazoo. So it's not exactly the same as when you see like an Arizona state game or something like that, where the Huskies have not handled those quite as well against this air raid offense. They've been able to make plays. They've been able to make just enough plays. They've been able to pass the ball as well and score. So for me, it's a little bit less scary, but also have that healthy fear. It's going to be a great atmosphere, a day game 
on Saturday at Husky Stadium. Another one, right? That Utah game was an early one as well. Right. Uh, so I'm excited for another day game there. But I I think this I think Nico this could be... threw for 485 yards last year against Washington State. I think this could be the first comfortable win in quite a while that the Huskies have against Wazio. It's at home. It's the Apple Cup. It means it means a lot to everybody, but it means more to this Husky team. They have everybody back. They have Jalen back. We'll see about the secondary. Again, if it means taking one more week and they're healthy for the conference championship, give them that one more week. But it would be nice to see Asa Turner and Cam Kubikulanen out there as well and get that full host. But if it isn't seeing... What is Estine's first name? Mikel Estine. Mikel Estine back there. Uh, and how he played last week could be awesome as well. Uh, seeing another week of Jabbar Muhammad too. And just like, he's now he's now ascended, right? Jabbar Muhammad is the number one player on this UW defense, I think, for the moment. So having another week of that, seeing what he can do against this air raid offense, I think it's going to be very, very fun. The other thing we should mention is it's it's Apple Cup first and foremost. It is also senior day for the Huskies. And look, we know that there's going to be one point, you know, another game in the Pac-12 championship, surely a bowl game after that. But this is the last time that they're going to play at Husky Stadium in front of home fans. The last chance for Mike, last time for Michael Penix Jr., surely the last time for Roma Dunze. Uh, I don't think Dylan Johnson has any eligibility re- remaining. So, you know, assuming he plays like so many of these guys, uh, it, it should be a real opportunity to celebrate them and, you know, to... Uh, kind of be thankful for the day after Thanksgiving. I guess Dylan Johnson does still have a year of eligibility remaining if he wants it. So that's that's cool. Totally. But, uh, no, I I totally agree with you. Yeah, to be thankful for this season because look, I, I've said it all along. It shouldn't be college football playoff or bust. We should just enjoy what's happening. It hasn't happened. Haven't gone this long undefeated since 1991. It doesn't happen all the time. It's not guaranteed to ever happen again in our lifetimes. Let's just appreciate it and enjoy it. Absolutely. No, I, I was thinking about that myself, actually, that, you know, at most we have four more chances to see Roma Dunze and Michael Penix as Huskies. These are the kind of players who are going to go down as the most important. There's going to be, you know, the big signs that they have throughout the stadium of the most important moments. There's going to be one of those of Roma Dunze and Michael Penix as well. Those are the type of players that we're watching right now at UW. We're watching probably the best quarterback in UW history, maybe the best receiver in UW history as well. Probably, I'd say, right? So to have both of them at the same time together is a very unique thing and to have these few last weeks to watch them it's the exciting thing about college football it's also the frustrating thing about college football that you don't get to have players when you have a rookie quarterback or whatever and you're like we're going to be following that dude forever like we get these these short windows of being fans of these players before they're off to the nfl and as much as you might love them in the nfl it's never the same unless they're on the seahawks or whatever right like when i think about john ross in the nfl i don't have any strong feelings at all as a Husky, I do. There, I don't. And this is going to be a huge moment. But I also wanted to mention... Oh, but what about the feelings we have when Jake Browning came in at quarterback for Cincinnati last Oh, that night? was good stuff. Good stuff. Did nothing wrong. Maybe exactly. we did some things wrong. Um, <clears throat> Not his fault on that uh, overturned completion. I also wanted to mention in this, the last Apple Cup, knowing that the Apple Cup will be back in a kind of stranger state from here forward, just a, you know, a year later in the Pac-12 having this be the last Pac-12 regular season game for the Huskies and their last time playing against a team that they're not going to be playing 
for I guess they could play Arizona in the conference championship. Uh, but just lamenting what happened with conferences. And I know that we followed it very, very closely. Obviously I did. And at some point <laughs> after the, <clears throat> after the USC decision, it became a bit of a necessity for UW to go there. And it really, really feels like in this moment more than ever, just how fucking absurd the conference realignment has gotten and is in this situation and how much it is damaging the sport of college football overall for those teams like Washington state, but also for the university of Washington, not being able to play these regional rivalries, having to look at the schedule next year and being like, they're playing Rutgers in a conference game, I guess against teams that we have no history with. We'll build it up. It'll still be okay. It'll still be college football, but it won't ever be the same. And the fact that it comes down to the fucking spineless people at USC, the deep fear that USC feels and felt in that moment that they needed to stay on the same level. They had to leave the conference that they were in for 100 years, making all of these dominoes fall and eventually ending the Pac-12 conference as it was, is an obscene thing. The money that is coming in from television networks and places like that shaking up the sport that we have all grown up with and known and love and had it be different. When I see a conference game between BYU and Oklahoma, I'm like, what is going on here? And that's going to be different next year as well. There's a reality to this that I was telling Luca about playing college football in 1998 or whatever. I was like, I remember the moment playing NCAA football video games as Kansas state with Michael Bishop and being like, I've been at this shit for a long time and it has always been one way and that way has changed slightly and some things have gotten better and some things have gotten worse, yeah, but no, nobody tell Tristan about the big eight. <laughs> but ultimately in the end, this is the worst thing that has happened to college football overall is this conference realignment is losing these teams that have been together for so long because of money and saying that, these teams are capable of going to a conference because of the money behind them and the backing, and these teams are not capable of it, and we can't get a TV deal together. The conference has made bad decisions throughout the years or whatever, but I don't think anybody in those moments felt like this is what it was going to come down to, and it is a terrible thing that we have lost in college football. And after this week, after this season, is college football still going to be fun? Of course it is. Are there still going to be fun games? Absolutely there will be. But it will never be the same, and it will never be as good after this college football season. So it's a sad place that we are in right now. I think we should relish the opportunity to have had this season uh, as one of the best in our entire lives in the Pac-12, and what a fun Pac-12 season it has been, and the schedule that the Huskies have been through. Because the Big Ten, there are a lot of problems that await them. Maybe there isn't buyer's remorse, but it is a complicated place to be. It is not the, the grass being so much greener over there in the big 10. It is moving into new problems that are coming. And the Huskies are also coming in, not at a full share of the TV revenue, not at the full share with Oregon and the TV revenue, having USC and UCLA coming in with that full amount. It is fucking bullshit that this is happening. And obviously people need to adjust. We need to deal with the situation that was handed to us. But it is deeply upsetting as we go into this last Apple Cup. And just wanted to mention that because college football, as it is, will never be the same again.
It absolutely won't. And I, I've said it all along that, yeah, I think your choice chasing short-term benefits and trading off the long-term popularity of the sport. And that's over a long timeline, but the thing about the future is it almost always comes. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.